fact. A few years back in the country of Moldova, our GGEDU co-founder Gary Martin was traveling by car when he was T-boned by a horse-drawn carriage. The horseman was so furious that he and Gary got out of their vehicles and went to fisticuffs. This actually happened, you know. Welcome to the RGGEDU podcast where Rob and Gary jibber-jabber with your favorite photographers. Season 5 of the RGGEDU podcast is brought to you by Ellen Crumb. The team at Ellen Crumb believes that photography, in all its forms, is one of life's great ongoing adventures, and they are firmly committed to creating lighting gear, modifiers, and accessories that make these adventures more fulfilling, productive, and rewarding. With the launch of the new ELB 500 TTL, adventurous portrait photographers desiring a TTL solution for both in-studio and on-location use can now join in on the fun. In this episode, we're joined with Joey L. right from his studio in Brooklyn. Joey, thanks for thanks for inviting us over here. We're also alongside Rob Grimm. Can't, I can't seem to shake him. No, we're like connected at the hip or something. We're yeah. always side by side. Connected at the butts, <laughs> not the hip. Let's, Conjoined let's, twins let's, connected let's at the butts. Welcome right. to you and your giant uh, posse from yeah. St. Louis. You're welcome here. It's kind of ridiculous. This isn't even like half of the crew, too. You know, when I walked down the stairs to get you guys, I was thinking, wait, is it? Could this be a wedding party that's having a celebration <laughs> in the? space directly above me or no this is the we're photo like team. we kind of roll like a boy band you know right you know we got a dj behind the scenes guy <laughs> audio guy well this guy our looks, fixer this guy looks like a dj yeah <laughs> it's another guy in the the full track suit is the dj yeah the red track yeah, suit, true. which there was a man in a full track suit in your posse <laughs> as well two yeah <laughs> basically two and the funny thing is they only wear adidas head to toe they're also welcome yeah don't worry welcome to brooklyn welcome to new york Awesome. So, Joey, I've been following your work ever since probably you published. I think my first introduction to you was it was Laura Jade versus uh, Joey L and that that educational series. That was many moons ago. Yeah, a lot's happened since then. A few moons then. ago. Yeah, I, some some stuff has happened. Laura's still a good friend of mine. Yeah. So, re- <laughs> reflecting back on those days where you were making that educational content, God, how old were you when you did that? Well, there were uh, many um, tutorials before that one. That was, um, I think, my second. That was my third big one, if you will. But uh, I've been making tutorials since I was um, honestly sixteen years old, seventeen years old. So uh, that's over ten years. Yeah. Um, I remember my first, maybe even longer than that, to be honest. I, m- I remember my first tutorial it was just burned on a CDR and didn't even have a label. It was just scribbled on it. Post processing tutorial. <laughs> really. Yeah. Um, so I, I've been educating for quite a long time, as long as I've been a photographer, because um, instead of going to a regular photo school, I educated myself by um, getting other photographers tutorials. So my trajectory was just like, I always thought that that's just what photographers should do. And that's what they're doing. And at least that's the people who I learned from were doing. So when I came up with some of my own tricks that like, if you looked at them now, they're like, God awful. <laughs> but yeah, so to answer your question in a short way, um, it was a long time ago. What were some of the educational things that you watched that really impacted you? Ghosts and there are random studio. beer bottles rolling out of yeah, a closet. This place is haunted. You gotta you gotta appease the ghosts here with an offering. Um, what was your question before? Uh, what were some of the educational through, uh, through a beer bottle? <laughs> what, what were some of the educational or photographers that really influenced you early on? Um, 
Well, what influenced me early on was actually um, I was part of a, a Jurassic Park website that uh, would photograph dinosaur toys. So it wasn't even really like a a name of a photographer that anyone would know. It was just kids um, like setting up toys and taking photos of them and sharing them online. And that's also how I learned Photoshop because uh, we do like Photoshop effects on them to make them like cool. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of those people who I first started learning from it actually uh, had nothing to do with the photography world. And you have to understand that um, at that time, the same resources weren't out uh, back then as they were now. And it feels so weird saying that, but I remember a time when um, seeing a uh, behind the scenes video on YouTube of a photo shoot was really like, wow, like a rare thing. But now it's uh, pretty common. So let's fast forward to today because you've given kind of that that history, that backstory quite a bit. Yeah. And the work you're doing now uh, scary. I would, I dangerous, but really, I guess fulfilling. I'm very jealous that you're doing that sort of work and it's really inspirational. What talk to me about, you know, your, your projects that you're doing in Iraq and the traveling that you were doing. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, this kind of stuff, this work that you're talking about is the reason why I became a photographer in the first place. You can look back at, um, an interview I did with David Hobby on Strobus 10 years ago. He said, what do you want to photograph? And that's exactly what I said I wanted to do. But, um, really, um, I've done so many cultural photography projects about, um, indigenous cultures, cultures that have endangered languages, things like that. I've always been interested in that even since I was in high school. And, um, I don't consider myself a war photographer at all, but, um, I always wanted to do a project on uh, Kurdish culture, which is a very distinct ethnic group in the Middle East. And um, when the war broke out in Iraq and Syria, to make a long story short, um, Kurdish culture really uh, became prominent because they had to defend themselves as Kurds against um, these fundamentalist groups. And uh, there's really a sort of a cultural renaissance in the war, if you will. So as a cultural photographer, um, it became necessary to do a project that let's say was in a war zone, but it's not like I fly around now and like check out hot war places to photograph or anything. It's just, um, it's an, it's been an area of interest of mine for years. And, um, to finally get there in person as a photographer was something that happened years later after I started studying it. So what what is it about the Kurdish culture? Do you have a family history, relatives? No, I have no um I have no personal connection to Kurdish culture, but I do think that they have a lot of uh creative uh political ideas. And if you're interested in endangered languages like I am, you'll know that um Kurdish uh languages were banned in all of the countries that they happened to find themselves in. Yeah. And it was only rebels in the mountains or uh secretly spoken inside the house as a language to keep it alive. And a lot of um, ancient Kurdish traditions are um, only around now because of uh, oral tradition through uh, poetry or singing. And um, so there was no personal DNA connection to me, except for um, you can look at those photos and those people in them. And I think that it's very close to the stuff that I've done in Ethiopia or India, uh, Indonesia, they're basically um, projects on endangered cultures. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you have to do 
in order to insert yourself into those positions? Because these are very difficult places to get to. And I'm also curious what the perspective is from their point of view with you being a Canadian coming from America. How, how do they become open to you being literally enveloped in their world? Um, so those are two very distinct questions, but they actually have the same answer in a way. So I'll, I'll answer the first one first. Um, uh, basically, in uh, 2011, I think it was a conflict of our generation, young people's generation, because it was defined as an Arab Spring in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And everybody was paying attention as to what was happening around the world. We thought a uh, grand revolution was uh, taking place, and young people were standing up for their rights, overthrowing dictators and things like that. But over time, these uh, good ideas sort of got hijacked by very uh, nefarious actors with their own um, motivations, let's say. So ha I studied that since anybody else watching the news in 2011 would have been bombarded with visuals, but I actually got involved in it from a social media perspective because although throughout war and history, uh, various factions try to galvanize other people and use propaganda, for the first time it was flooding into my social media. And... Um, Early on in the war, 2013, especially, you, you, you could follow every side of the war on Twitter, and it was unfolding kind of like old, uh, old war journals would read, mm -hmm. like, Dear Martha, I'm stuck in the trench in Normandy, <laughs> right? But it was like on Twitter, and people were just yeah. shitposting and using memes and stuff. So it was very interesting to like follow it from that perspective. I mean, in 2013, you could follow jihadists on Twitter that eventually went and joined ISIS. So everybody was kind of having a look at it and really didn't know how these tools were being used. So if you were interested in photography, uh, looking at this was like looking at um, a kid making a Lenny Riefenstahl film, but with a DSLR. Mm -hmm. It was really crazy to, uh, to watch. So that kind of interest in visuals and propaganda got me uh, sucked in. Um, as for the Kurdish groups, um, I told you that they're very creative in the way that they organize themselves, especially with citizens, uh, militias, and some of their political ideology. So you asked me what the, what the second part of your question was, uh, what uh, gained their trust or whatever. Yeah, how, how did, how did I, they come I was, to accept um, you? Yeah, well, um, I had read about the conflict for so many years before that, that when I actually was there... I knew a good idea of um, what they were up against and what they stood for. And if you have these long conversations with commanders, but you've already done your, uh, your research and your um, um, back history stuff, then um, that's kind of like step one. But I also uh, managed to work with some really good uh, local translators and local fixers who had these groups trust. And it's just like any project I've ever done. It's been done over multiple trips. I would say I got the best stuff on trip number two, not trip number one, because people saw my motivations, what I was up, what I was up to. And, um, they saw the work that I was creating and, um, they basically opened the door for me, um, after that first trip. Were you <clears throat> probably doing it in secrecy when you were there or, or were you, you know, live tweeting and that sort of thing? Uh, no, I definitely wasn't live tweeting. There are some journalists who go to these zones and um, they report from there, but that's never really been my uh, a good idea, I think, just because of uh, how uh, 
how dangerous it can be for foreigners sometimes there are some people who sort of do something in between and when they like change places and they start tweeting but i've always felt it was generally a bad idea because i'm not working on behalf of a publication and, and i don't have to so at that point it'd just be grandstanding so when I get back, I give a few days. Um, I back up all my stuff, <laughs> and then I'll do a little, little report of what I saw, just to sort of uh, give a more immediate a- analysis. But then, um, I mean, all my stories and all the main stuff is a is is a, is a large book project essentially. So it's uh, working in a different theater than uh, jur- uh, journalism, yep. which is immediate. So that's why I always say it's a it's a cultural project. Even that video that I released, um, I mean, when I put it out, there are events that were filmed that happened months and months before, but uh, it's not really looking at it through a breaking news uh, yeah. lens or I would assume that with all the research that you're doing and, and really learning the culture, you, you would probably be going there with some sort of preconceived idea of the type of images that you're going to get. How did that change, though, when you got there? Were there things that completely shifted in new directions that you had no idea was going to happen? Yes, um, definitely. Uh, I always knew that I wanted to do um, a portrait style project, so mm-hmm. not raw photojournalism or things like that. I wanted to add something stylistic that was similar to my old work, something different from, let's say, what other um, people were doing in the region. But my first trip was very short. It was only two weeks long. And uh, I guess you could call it a scout or whatever, but I told myself like, if I could just get portraits on a backdrop i'd be happy and i told myself i'd stay away from fighting zones and all this kind of stuff and when i went there you blew that didn't you well i was really uh to be honest i i was really paranoid the first uh couple days first week or whatever and then i started to really trust these people so um the work evolved as uh I sort of wanted to see more and explore more and if uh your project is on kurdish culture it's on fighters you have to go to where the fighters are. <laughs> so, uh, like I'm scared of everything, believe me. But, uh, I guess, um, over the different trips, I just took more risks because, um, I realized that the people that I was with were really good and trustworthy people. But there's no way to guarantee any kind of safety. I mean, you're really going into a very dangerous place. Yeah. But, um, when you're with, uh, good people, you can change that, um, those those statistics by quite a lot so what's the pre-production like on a trip like this how long did you plan this do you use other producers like what's that team look like uh no you're looking at it's just me and um my local friend uh jan and his wife epec who live in kurdistan and um how'd you meet really any production oh um it's a funny story i uh i saw a documentary that another journalist had worked on and um basically they don't appear in it but their names are in the credits like a student uh and then i just typed that into facebook and there they were and i realized that the people i was talking to on skype are visible in like three frames in the background of one specific shot and then of course i checked with the filmmakers to make sure that they had good things to say about these people and then it was just um gut instinct because um uh, um, there's only so much you can really verify, like asking journalists for their, um, recommendation, talking to these people. There's not really much more you can do except go there, 
know that you're flying into a relatively, uh, well, a, a very safe zone of northern Iraq is very stable. And uh, the choices you make day by day, you can decide them as you go. So if you figure you're entering somewhere safe, you're not going to make a decision that's unsafe. You'll do it one step at a time. So um, to me, that was never really a, a, a big deal. So getting into Iraq, are there are there people at the border trying to stop you, um, you know, prevent you from getting in? No, at that time, there wasn't. There's some issues happening actually right now as we speak. But um, northern Iraq uh, became uh, an autonomous zone. Uh, and a no-fly zone, and the Kurds established um, the Kurdistan regional government. And actually, uh, as a Canadian, you can fly there and enter without a visa. It's getting into Syria is, is the problem because um, there are some ways to um, beg uh, some politicians and, and officials to let you use their informal crossing, which is like a boat across a river. It's very normal. But over time of those trips that became impossible to do and we had to go a lot uh more creative ways let's say because when you enter syria you're going into an area that's not under the control of the syrian government so um there's no passport stamp or things like that it's more it's a more of a creative way so northern iraq is, is no problem but getting into syria you have to um you have to be with good people and me as a foreigner i would never pretend to know how to how to do those things um that goes into uh, having trust in the people that you're working with. Were there things that, that just totally shocked you that you weren't prepared for that you saw or experienced over there? Um, well, when ISIS did its uh, sweeping rampage across that region, they, um, they did a lot of massacres uh, to people that their fundamentalist ideology determined um, could be ethnically cleansed. So when Kurds rose up, they were defending themselves as Kurds. They were basically fighting for survival. And I would have heard about like this idea of um, like a real fighter or the heart of a warrior sounds so cheesy before I went. But when I saw those people and you meet commanders that were part of the Iraqi army, their entire unit fled when ISIS came. But now he's like a guerrilla commander he has uh, 18-year-old girls in his unit, and he says that they fight better than his old soldiers. You can see it yourself, and it becomes real. So um, that I wouldn't believe before I went. I thought there was something more to it. Mm -hmm. I thought there was more of um, um, when something's really complicated, you, you think there's something special happening behind the scenes. But when you go there, you're like, no, these are just real people uh, with weapons using their bodies and just basically fighting over an area and like pushing other people out. It's really hard to explain. I hope that makes sense, but it's just really crazy. So, um, no, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And sort of like for not when having I, been there, there's, uh, there's no way for me to really feel it <laughs> tangibly. Yeah. When I first went there, the Americans had been doing, um, airstrikes for a few months, mm -hmm. like in support of these groups, but it really wasn't that much. Their, um, full, full blown support came much later. And even on my first trip, they were in cities and like they were losing. Um, there'd be front lines that would collapse because ISIS was using um, hell cannons and barrel, uh, like uh, hell cannons, like an improvised um, uh, howitzer that shoots a barrel out. And um, yeah, it was really, it was really crazy, um, basically.
from a logistical point of view, uh-huh. just technological issues like battery life for your cameras. Do you have access to electricity? How do you even plan that? Do you know where you're going to be from one day to the next? Uh, yeah, so the thing that you yeah, got to think about these uh, arm groups is um, what makes them special, of course, is having the heart of a fighter, but also they need um, extremely good uh, organizational skills, maybe like a like a photo shoot would for a <laughs> weird uh, co- comparison. So if you have fighters on, on the front line, of, of course, uh, for them not to run away, they need like a fighter's heart. But at the same time, they need um, supplies of uh, food and water, sophisticated uh, organizational capabilities going on behind the scenes. And, of course, one of those things is uh, is electricity. Yeah. So in uh, some bases, of course, they have generators and, and things. And um, there's some front lines that you don't really want to sleep on anyway. And turning on a generator is very dangerous. But there's other things that you might call like resistance lines or support lines or forward operating bases that are a little bit back. And of course they have electricity. Um, there's roads that go right to them. Actually there's places there that are way more accessible than some of my old, uh, past trips where we'd like trek through the, through the jungle for three days or, or something. It seemed kind of easy in comparison to be honest. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, Iraq and Syria were amazing countries before the war. A lot of people don't really see old footage or old um even in syria like old tourism i have a lonely planet over there where you can see it's uh obviously devastating what happened there but these are these were um developed countries before the war so of course there's roads connecting everything and infrastructure and it's all been damaged now but um yeah you can you can charge stuff pretty easily were you accepted by all the kurdish or were there some people that you know didn't want you there for whatever reason no, they see anyone that wants to make an effort to actually get there, you become valuable for them as well because they're trying to tell their story to the outside world and um, they might see you as an instrument for propaganda as well. Um, so uh, honestly, the first trip I didn't expect to have access to very much and they basically showed me everything and everything that I wanted to see and more. I mean, these guys on my second trip were making lists that would be like, uh, water to like this unit, fuel to this unit, photographer to like the Arab YPG fighters. Cause that's what he wants to see today. So yeah, they were, they were, uh, they were working hard because, um, like, like I said, for a journalist to, to go there, um, at that time, um, was a little bit difficult and it's, it still is today. So they understand, uh, media and they started to understand it, especially this year. But, uh, they know that that can change public perception. They know how influential it can be. And to be honest, they have really great stories to tell. So they have nothing to hide any- anyway. You know, you, you said that they, they could see you as a vehicle for propaganda. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you ever feel like they kind of used you in a weird way, that they were presenting something that wasn't necessarily true in order for you to broadcast that? No, because I don't remember being forced to do anything. I don't remember being flown there on a uh, golden airplane and uh, smuggled <laughs> right. in. There are um, certain propagandists I became aware of after studying these issues for a long time, but those are more uh, think tanks based in Washington, uh, openly lying one of the interesting things, I, I don't know if this is very interesting for a photography podcast, but probably, but one of the things you realize when you go see war or something like that, you realize uh, 
the supreme amount of bullshit being pumped out by people who have actually never been there themselves. And um, you start to believe in uh, what has now been famously dubbed as fake news. Uh, (laughs) There are many of us that... Jesus. Yeah, well, there are many of us that thought what we were seeing on television was bullshit before that became popular to say. But, I mean, I've even... I've seen things with my own eyes that other people have done reports or written about that weren't there that are total fabrications. So you start really to believe in nothing anymore that you see on TV or maybe better in a more positive way. You you start to um, question it and think a little deeper, but this is just like one issue that I was able to go in deep about. And I just assume that if this is the reality with something I've seen myself, it must be the reality with, a every other conflict that ever happened or b just normal stuff going on so yeah it really kind of like fucks with your pers- uh, perspective to be honest on most things how do you think all of that translates into your commercial work because there's a, a true depth that you have to go into research and obviously you're getting a lot back from your subjects how do you think that's influenced the, the work that you do for commercial clients now over the years yeah well my personal projects and my commercial projects are always linked because as you say um when when you work on a on, on a campaign, it, it really does have um have a focus and a story, a story yeah. and it's not just a bunch of random photos. You're thinking about like my book could be honestly like a campaign in a way. How are you going to break this up into individual stories on social media? Um, which characters are you going to highlight? Things like that. One is um an advertisement, but one is a personal work but there's a lot of different stylistic things that could be shared as well but um i mean i've i've uh, missed a lot of commercial jobs from doing this work but um at the same time it's helped me grow a lot as a photographer um i've learned new lighting tricks even or uh things like that just working on my feet or just um i, I mean one of my clients is also is is the u.s army so mm-hmm. um even from that perspective, it's interesting to see those two worlds collide. But um, yeah, I'm basically, I'm a photographer that gets hired to do very distinct random projects. And um, it's hard for this uh, kind of thing not to influence er- uh, everything you do. With the U.S. Army being one of your clients, were you able to use them for advice or help or uh, anything for these trips? <laughs> well, they they had a covert presence in Syria <laughs> for a long time. They weren't supposed to be there on the ground, and they were. It's like you ran you run into them. You're not supposed to see one another. But now it's <laughs> but and now it's open that they're there. But uh, no, not not really. To be honest, they're kind of the last people that I'd want to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do they ask you not to photograph them when you when you see them? Uh, they're not very covert if you're stumbling upon them. You well, know? they're special. Well, <laughs> Unless you're super covert. Special ops. There's special ops there. But, I mean, it comes down to operational security. It's a good idea not to photograph them because yeah, you're not them, breaking their rules. You're breaking the rules of the local forces. And yep. they really are not running the show. The local forces are, like, when they say that on television, like, we're just there assisting. Like, we're not fighting. It is true. So if you're on a front line and they're doing something, it's it's obviously not wise to photograph you're in a military zone. But um, no, there's been really no crossover um, with U.S. Army. I mean, the Marines have a presence there, which is a different branch. But um, other than maybe some interesting conversations with people who um, have fought in that area before. But uh, yeah, the U.S. Army is, isn't really involved in Syria. What do you want Westerners that 
maybe aren't very well traveled to, you know, understand from your experiences from going over there? Um, I think, you know, just kind of developing that, that question. I think a lot of us, yeah, a lot that's of a very big, have, I, I went home cause that's <laughs> like a very like a lot of Westerners, especially the people that aren't really traveled, you know, that believe in the whole fake news have almost an umbrella opinion of that whole region. Oh, okay. And a lot of people don't even know that like, the Kurdish are different than a lot of people in that in that area and have different beliefs, have different values. Um, like, what would you say, you know, is your biggest takeaway to you know tell people about that area? I think uh, what's different from my films or documentaries or photos from that region is um, we get to see a very human side of things. And uh, like I was saying, when you get down on the ground there. You're like, oh, shit, I would have made this decision as well to join this group or do this action or whatever. You realize that there's really just like humans driving this whole thing. Even the will to fight is like very human. It's not a I mean, the Americans very poorly calculated this 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 whole conflict because it's being dreamt up by think tank analysts that look at statistics. Yeah. So back to your question, it would be to see the human side of this thing. Like these are people that have senses of humor as I said before, they're like using their bodies to fight. The The whole thing is really crazy. And it's not just a statistical like, oh, this group uh, took this village and here are the stats. It's very different. So um, actually, this war in Syria, I've been on multiple sides of it. I've even um, been with groups who fight other groups, whether it's the Syrian government, some Syrian rebel groups or the Kurds. And um, yeah, you realize that um, surprise, surprise behind the scenes is just people driving this thing. So you know, if, uh, if you're a portrait f- photographer, you should be interested in these, in these questions and raw photojournalistic photography certainly has a place because when you look at it, you think of, um, someone has captured a moment for someone to view, but a portrait photographer is more interested in uh, people and motivations and things like that. When I look at your work, I definitely see, um, that very, very strong connection that you make with the people that are your portrait subjects. I mean, you, you clearly um, are engaging with them on a very personal level. What kind of challenges do you have to get through the language barriers and, and the, um, the cultural barriers when you're in a place like Iraq or you're dealing with Kurdish? How do you get through that to get that really deep portrait? You got to be very patient. That's like the number one thing a photographer has to learn and has to do. These situations are very, very boring. I, I mean, war can be so boring, but in general, things just take a lot of time. And um, I've seen huge crews, like for BBC, like roll into a place for a couple of days, shoot something, roll out, and they get the news, and it's the news. But I think if you have the ability to spend more time to miss significant uh, commercial projects because you're passionate to be there, then um, you can probably get better stuff so i mean if you wanted to gain someone's trust that's your neighbor it would it would it would take time it's certainly no different um it's even harder when there's a language barrier so it's just like mutual respect and just taking a lot of time and um really learning to uh just kind of let go and not be stressed out about things and not really have a crazy um production mind when you're there because uh a lot of the times, as much as you want to control the situation, sometimes you can't. And um, you just got to basically sit around drinking tea and wait <laughs> yeah. wait for the time to present itself. And uh, 
if you only budgeted a little bit of time, like my second trip was 40 days, but if you only budget a little bit amount of time, it means that in the back of your head, you're going to be stressed because as a photographer, you want to get stuff, right? Like that's right. a, that's, can't a, that's a very, yeah. And that's a very good feeling because you're pushed to like ask and get stuff. But, um, at the end of the day, like sometimes, uh, you're not going to get shit. <laughs> so you got to wait. <laughs> so you got to, you got to be patient. So yeah, I, I would just say like maybe patience is probably the most important thing. Is this project going to keep going? Are you going to go back and when, uh, do you, when do you feel like you're going to be satisfied or do you ever feel satisfied with anything? Um, no, I don't really feel satisfied about anything. I, I, I think it's a, at a very natural place now to make this book and, uh, I don't need to be going back to add more to it. But, um, as like any other uh, place I've been in the world, I'll definitely be back and I'd love to bring some copies of my book there. So maybe that yeah. would be cool to do. But um, yeah, I've been to so many places doing um, commercial photo shoots like all around the world and things like that. But I only fall in love with a few very specific places and those places I continue to go over and over again through the years, even if it's not for a photo project, just to visit. So where are those places? Uh, that would be uh, India. Uh, some places of Indonesia, um, uh, of course, Kurdistan, and uh, our uh, my home here in New York as well. <laughs> you think you're always going to live in New York? Um, probably. I think so. I don't know. Um, I like it here. I think um, people get burnt out who have to go to work every, every day and do the same thing, the same grind. But luckily, I'm fortunate to be able to escape. So... It's always remains a, a a special place. Have you considered quitting photography at any point? Oh, every day. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? I that... mean, any any photographer should uh, should admit that we always think like, ah, fuck, it'd be so much. I, if I put this much effort into like the stock market, I would be a millionaire <laughs> or a billionaire, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But um, yeah, of course, when things uh, get very uh, difficult, that's all you can think about. But um, at the end of the day, when you come to your rational mind and actually think about that, you think, is this something you would actually want to do, Joe? Like, that's my own little voice in my head asking me. The answer is no. So um, it's definitely not all uh, sunny and rosy. It definitely has its challenges. But at the end of the day, um, I can't really see myself doing uh, much else um, other than... Um, studying or doing something related to the topics that I photographed. Another thing that I believe in is, uh, the way to choose your personal projects, your passion projects is you should ask yourself if your camera breaks when you're on the trip, would you leave or would you stay till the end of the time that you allotted? That's something to know if you're truly passionate about something. And I can tell you that if my camera broke in any of those places, I would still stick around to look around and observe and check it out. So, um, being a photographer has been the sort of device or passport for me to study these things, or they've been an excuse to go there. So I don't think I'll ever give that up. You know, kind of expanding on that idea of you would, you would stay with the trip uh, if your camera broke when you're going through that, what's your edit process like? Do you go back and review images at night and then be influenced by what you're seeing? Or do you not look at it and just go through the experience and th see everything when you come back? No, I definitely look because <laughs> that's a nice <laughs> can't way help to yourself. get, yeah, I can't help it, but that's right. also a nice way to get people 
knowing about what you're doing in any place. I mean, so you're sharing it with them and you're oh, really yeah. involving them yeah. in the process to see what you're doing. That's one of the best things about digital photography is you can show people what you're up to immediately. Um, that's awesome. So yeah, every, every night we can look at what was shot and then can, does it uh, change your approach? Are you going out the next day thinking of something totally different? Of course, because I go, oh, man, I screwed this up. Oh, <laughs> shit, if I just, like, stood a little bit this way, got a little, oh, man. Yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> I think every photographer does that. So what is your, and if they tell you they don't, I think they're lying. <laughs> do you have an average day-to-day? Like, how do you spend every day all day? What do you do? Um, if your life is very chaotic and you're going place to place, there are some things that you have to remain um, to stay sane as a creative that you have to like stay. Um, what's the word? Like have a steady uh, uh, schedule. What, what is the word I'm thinking of? Um, Being grounded in some way. Routine. Yeah. yeah. There are some things that um, like if if uh, you're a freelancer, let's say, and every day is kind of different or crazy or you wake up and there's a new thing or whatever that can drive you insane if other aspects of your life are not routine, have routine. So, uh, you guys are in my workspace. Um, I have a set, um, hours that I work here each week, not every single day, every single day. If I have like a deadline or I have to retouch or something's happening, but I do have regular hours and things I set for myself just to help, um, preserve, uh, sanity. And then as I've gotten older, I have realized to sort of when it comes to a certain time, like that's it for the day. I like leave this workspace and I'm kind of like on a palate cleanse inside of my mind. But of course that can, you know, be thrown through the roof. And, um, if there's an assignment that needs something last minute, I'm not going to say like, uh, Oh no, that's not my work hours. <laughs> like, of course I'll, I'll yeah, do yeah. it. But then after that's over, I'll have to retreat back to this, uh, normal routine. And that kind of helps me stay focused and, uh, continually be able to um stay on top of things what's your morning routine look like what's the what's the first thing you do when you get out of bed oh i i uh this is gonna sound uh, lame but um i uh read and check twitter <laughs> so i um i'm obsessed with like the a news. tangible book uh yeah yeah okay. yeah you guys should have come over to my house um um but uh yeah i i read for maybe like one or two hours in the morning um like with some coffee and I check, uh, I check Twitter religiously. What are you checking on Twitter? Just people you follow? Oh, geo hell, man. Hell yeah. on earth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why, why am I looking at this thing? It's like, yeah. it's like a, it's like a sick, it's like a sick pleasure. You look, you look at that, you go, why, why do I have to yeah. fill my life with You're this? Compelled. <laughs> do you do the same thing it's with like, Instagram or Facebook? Do you just find yourself just endlessly mm, scrolling? Not really. My thing's Twitter, man. I, I have those I have those social media platforms. I like them, but for me Twitter is the is the sickest one of all. <laughs> the most the most uh horrific one. So that's the one that I like. Are you more of a just a, a viewer on Twitter or are you engaging and talking and responding? Mostly a viewer. <laughs> The way I the way I share stuff on social media is very different than like me lurking in the background looking at stuff. But um um, but yeah, that's what my morning looks like basically. All right. So now it's lunchtime. What do you do? <laughs> I, do, you do I walk the, here. You walk or ride my bicycle here. I, I get in. Um, I usually, um, uh, at that point, like check my email. If anything's really, um, blatantly urgent, I'll just answer it right away. If not, 
I'll make a little to-do list for myself and it's probably still up on my computer from the day before because it's like likely the same thing, like retouching on this project, working on this project. And then, um, I'll work on that throughout the day and then I'll, um, call that quits about six or seven. And then I usually work like this, um, about three days per week, four days per week sometimes. And then, uh, on days that I don't do that, I still do the same like morning routine, like, uh, like reading and also checking Twitter, which does not count as reading. It counts more <laughs> as, um, uh, I don't even know what that is. Like, uh, dumpster diving, uh, on other, other days that I don't do to do that, I tried to mix it up and do something completely different. Um, so what are, what are three books every photographer should read or just people? <laughs> what, what are three books you need to read? Oh man, the books I'm reading right now are like not about photography at all. I let me let, let me think about that one and get Doesn't and get have back to be to about you. photography. Um my bookshelf is horrific as my Twitter account. It's all about like propaganda and war <laughs> and uh anthropology and political science, so I don't know. Um The book I'm reading right now is called uh, Shadow Wars. It's like really long and uh i'm very uneducated so i have to get to a paragraph and look up some word and then it takes me on a wormhole to something else um why do you think you're uneducated um i'd mean like uh classically educated i mean i i finished high school i have my degree but i just mean um I, i didn't get to go to university or anything like that do you think that's important if you're you know able to travel as much as you do no, it's not as important. Um, there's a distinction in the arts. The the most in let's say in most cases, but not in all cases, in the creative field, most of the people working who are actually doing stuff are not kept inside of the um, educational institutions. There are some exceptions with like great teachers, and I don't mean to. Um, talk shit on them but for the most part most photography teachers in a university are failed photographers um however in the sciences or things like that mm, the best minds are inside of the university Mm -hmm. or as an example if you wanted to get a surgery done would you like go to someone that like watch youtube tutorials maybe not (laughs) so there are some things where there were like where the institution has uh kept the minds there but for photography, I would say not at all. Do you have to study in a formal setting? You should, and I know you guys are a tutorial website, but you should go to workshops of other photographers, uh, read things online, watch tutorials, purchase tutorials. And um, if you uh, are of the mind where you say like, no, that's not my learning style. Um, I need to be like in a university so I can show up every day and uh, be driven to, to work, then I can say that you're not going to make it as a photographer anyway. So um, if you're not motivated to self-educate, it's so difficult that um, I would consider doing something else. And for all those people um, who are self-educating, they know that if they don't um, wake up early to catch a sunrise to do a photo shoot, they know that um, if they don't... Um, educate themselves on this certain tool or whatever that somebody else is ready to do it. So, um, I think, um, 
the internet is an amazing place to self-educate and uh, photography is one of those places where it really worked out for people, especially for photographers. Do you still go to workshops, other photographers? I just bought a freaking creative live, creative live course the other day on, um, on a, a certain kind of marketing. <laughs> so yes, I do. Nice. <laughs> so, definitely. Yeah. I mean, imagine if I just said all that, that uh, rant and then I was like, nah, I don't, yeah. I don't self educate <laughs> anymore. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Can we talk a little bit about your commercial work today? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, let's start with marketing. How, how are you getting work? How are you, how are clients finding you? Um, so yeah, so it's, um, it's a lot of different things all at one time. There's no set path and there's no set rules. I think, um, what's kind of interesting now is, uh, a lot of the creatives and art directors and stuff who've been hiring me recently are really young and there are people who like, uh, came up watching my tutorials and stuff. It's really interesting. Um, never has that happened to me before these last like two or three years. It's really amazing. But, um, like any other photographer would that has an agency or whatever, I'm going into these um, places with my printed portfolio, showing them my work, um, doing that maybe a hundred times to get hired once for something. You can plant a seed somewhere, and then five years later, you'll get a random email from someone who met you. I mean, the industry is quite small in that way. Or uh, you work with someone, you do a good job, you have a good reputation, they move somewhere else. They tell someone else. They recommend you. It's very much like a like like a small business. It's very niche. So, like for the kind of advertising work I'm I'm doing, it would be first and foremost doing portfolio work uh, presentations, showing my stuff, and um, also um, sharing new projects online where um, creative directors and art directors I've worked with before are kind of like seeing what I'm up to. And, um, I also have good, uh, good agents who, um, are doing this kind of work as well while I'm shooting. Um, they'll show people my, uh, stuff and it's kind of like a combination of all of those things at one time. Um, sometimes I might do a talk somewhere and there's someone in the audience that works somewhere that hires me. It's kind of like that. It's really, it's really bizarre. When you go to a portfolio showing, mm. do you bring treats, do you, something to get everyone out of the office and my agents do that kind of stuff sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but um, when I go, it's more for like a like a face to face kind of meeting. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's their job. But um, if I'm going, it's usually uh, a little bit a little bit different. Yeah, face to face is important because it's it's this business is relationship based. They have to know yeah. you. They have to trust you to to give you the dollars on a on a major ad campaign. So it takes a while to build that trust with with clients. Yeah. And, um, if you're a photographer, it means that you're super niche doing something. So even if someone has an, an account or they're creative and you know them, you can't expect them to hire you for something if you're not the best person for it. Like if you, if you were in their position, you wouldn't choose yourself for it. So me as a portrait photographer, I've, um, helped myself by being very specific with what I do and having like a niche style. So that way, um, when something does come up, that could um, be relative to what I could do, I'll get hired for it. The other thing that I didn't mention is um, when um, a project comes up um, that's specific to my style, then um, I'll put together some some references of other things that I've shot that are similar. And it's um, maybe you'll be up against 
three or four other photographers, um, the creative aspect will come to it, but also the bidding process will come to it. How expensive you are, how much, um, it'll cost. Does your budget, um, help the situation or do they look at it and go, Ooh, this guy like wants to work with all this stuff. We saw it more as like raw, you know, thing, thing, things like that. If you work in the industry for long enough, um, one step at a time, one connection at a time, um, you can get to a place where things start to start to come to you. I think. How do you think creative directors define you as a photographer? Mm, portrait in, environmental portrait photographer with a cinematic edge right. like that. <laughs> so that's my kind of niche. So that could extend to movie posters. It could extend to, um, advertising campaigns or it could extend to my personal project. The other thing that I've been talking about for years is for people like not to like other photographers, not to wait around, uh, to get hired, like, like, um, waiting for someone to come to them. It's instead to do your own work as if it were a commercial project so that you keep um, like a sort of a forward momentum. Maybe you guys have this feeling, but when you have a sort of dry spell, you can break it by just doing something. And then all of a sudden, like life is weird like that. You get a little bit of forward momentum doing something yourself. And all of a sudden you're really super busy. So for photographers that are just sort of sitting around waiting for something to come, they're doing it wrong. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Busy not, begets bu- being busy. Yeah, because you're putting stuff out into the right. world um, and uh, you're making connections with people. And because photography is a small business, that's the only way, I think, to get um, hired. The other part is when you do get hired, you have to do a really good job. And uh, your rep- your reputation is literally everything. It's everything, yeah. So... um Especially nowadays, there's a lot of photographers to choose from who can do a lot of the same stuff. So at that point, you got to be good to work with. You got to be trustworthy. You got to run a very tight ship, very good production. You have to um, have a good um, a good crew and keep everything um, keep everything really tight. I think. How much of your work is personal versus actual job? Fifty uh, fifty, I'd say. Really, you're split down the middle. Some years it's more personal, some years it's more commercial, but generally if you were to make an analysis of five years, it would be basically 50 How do your agents like that? Uh, that's really good for them because um, I, I uh, know of other agents that would find um, an, an issue with that because they'd be like, what are you doing missing all this work? But the people I work with are very smart and they know that most of the stuff I get hired is because of uh, some personal project that I've done. Yeah. So for example, um, I mean, creative, uh, people who want to hire you like an art director, what, whatever, they'll look to your personal work and see what this photographer is doing by themselves. Um, and can that apply to a project that they, they, they want to work with, um, with, uh, creative people. So, um, it's, uh, it's my personal projects. They're for me. They're like, um, for personal growth, but at the same time, they become good fuel to show um, the commercial side of what I do as so well. What are the new commercial or what are the new personal projects we're going to see coming out of you? And the new commercial projects, no, pers- or personal. I started to say that wrong, but oh. I want to about your new your new personal stuff. What, what's on the horizon for you? Um, I uh, this so this book has been 
uh, geo hell trying to get this thing done. No, um, this book in the Kurdistan, uh, basically, um, I, I wrote like 40,000 words and I just finished last week and now I'm going through the editing process with the editor. So it's first and foremost, a photo book, but the back of it is like written journals and, um, that'll come out in uh spring, summer, 2018. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of uh, personal projects, I actually have a commission thing that I, I can't talk about, but um, it'll be going to six different countries around the world. And it's a commission project, but um, luckily the way that I'm going to shoot it is the exact same as any other project. So that'll be a big one. On my computer over there, you can see uh, some stuff I just shot for uh, a charity called Water Aid in Sierra Leone. Um, we're polishing up that now and doing some color grade, and that'll start to come out um, probably next week as well so um yeah there's a lot of uh, yeah the to-do list is uh pretty big it's long yeah <laughs> going yeah. but but those six countries next year will be like a unified project but um that's all that's all i could i'm authorized to say at this cool point. <laughs> going back to talking about agents when did you decide that it was time to get an agent and how did that how did that work out yeah there's a misconception that an agent will save your life and that's what photographers need. The issue is, is, um, you should get an agent when, um, you start having paid clients yourself already and you can't handle, um, you can't handle all this stuff behind the scenes and you need like a, like, like a partner, let's say to help, uh, sell what you're doing and any good agent will work with you only if you already have paying clients. Otherwise it's not really worth their time. You could merge with an up and coming agent earlier and that's fine too, but it's a kind of different. So, um, when I started to get, uh, paid work, I realized that, um, I could be doing more of it if I had someone kind of, uh, doing that important stuff behind the scenes. So, uh, that's how how, how I worked. How did your pricing change when you got an agent? They raise you quite a bit. Yeah. The thing is, is, um, with so many up and coming photographers, the issue is, is, uh, if they're not careful, they can also devalue the industry and, uh, photography agents, um, know historically what photographers should be paid for things and they can negotiate things and do things the correct way. So I think that, um, as a responsibility to the photography industry, it would be good to um, quote fairly. And since uh, before agency, I didn't really know how to do any of that stuff. It would be very unwise for me to be also be ne- negotiating. But I did do it for a long time before I had an agent. But uh, that's uh, how it unraveled itself. What's your advice for photographers that are really intimidated about pricing themselves and just don't have resources uh, to do it? Um, it's a big question. Yeah, it's a it's a big question, but luckily now th- there's so many good um, good resources that w- weren't around ten years ago or what longer. I mean, there's amazing breakdowns on uh, a photo editor dot com. Yeah. I mean, that website is is amazing. Cool. Yeah. You, you you can see uh, producers and photo agents that have quoted on things. That would be a really good uh, a, a good starting point. Also. Um, PDN has uh, sections where they do like price breakdowns of uh, different jobs. So these are really amazing uh, resources. So 
what would I say to people who are intimidated and uh, intimidated by it is like, you don't need an agent to do these things, but also like, don't guesswork and don't just like, bah, um, it instead, uh, do your homework and research because it'll help you, but it'll also help all the other, um, photographers that are fighting to, uh, uh, maintain their livelihoods, uh, in the photography industry. You did a, a huge project. I think it was pretty big for Lavazza. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that project come about? And what was what were what were the deliverables? The project for Lavazza was uh, every year they have a they have a calendar, and they get a um, they get a photographer to shoot it. They they choose someone, and um, it's um, our calendar was uh, for 2016, and it was in. Um, it was a 40 day shoot. <laughs> it was in uh, five different countries in central and South America. And, um, that project was, uh, exploring, um, generation of, uh, of, uh, agriculturalists and coffee farmers. And, uh, how did I get that project? Well, um, the, uh, creative directors knew about my personal projects before they knew about my environmental portrait, uh, portraits. And the year before was shot by Steve McCurry and they were thinking, um, for this next year for 2016, if it's, uh, like a new generation of agriculturists, maybe they should choose someone young. So the, um, the art director, um, remembered my work and they, um, asked me if I was interested to do it. And of course I played it cool, but in my own mind, I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cause, um, thing about Lovazza as a client but also uh, Italy in general is they're still like really good uh, patron of the arts and um, they treat photographers really good so it was a dream client and dream project also I was very fortunate to do it what was the hardest part about the, that project honestly if you can believe it in 40 days there was not a single fight there was not a single um, missing bag in the airport it was uh, there, there an amazing fights? production. There's fights on your shoots? There's not Fist, fights. Fisticuffs? There's not fights, but when you're traveling with someone nonstop for 40 days, you could have uh, some tensions disagreements or tensions bit, yeah. or arguments, or sometimes you could um, you know, have disagreements on set, so that's very normal. Creative people should, should clash sometimes so that um, the best vision wins. I mean, that's good. It's like a positive fighting, but everybody for that was pretty much on the same page. And, um, I think really what it was is we had a really good, uh, production who had done the calendar for years and years before. And I was worried because I hadn't worked with, with yeah. them, but, um, yeah, they produced in all these different countries. Um, but what was the hardest thing? Um, I would say, afterward to be honest when we got back because um we had shot all this stuff and um i needed to edit it into a very uh unified vision because at the end of the day it was uh it was a printed calendar so you could be in love with certain images but they wouldn't really fit together in the grand scheme of things like as a flipping physical book so some of the things you shot that you fell in love with really had no place so you had to um had to kill your darlings, if, if you will. So that that was really tough. But um, in terms of the shoot itself, it had, I, it went really smoothly. I mean, I've had shoots that are one day that have been a lot more challenging than, than that one. So. How, how large was the crew on, on a project like that? How many people were you with? Um, 
I mean, there was a lot of people on that one, but it was mostly because the Italians wanted to come and hang out and drink coffee and smoke, <laughs> and smoke cigarettes. <laughs> but from the they love their coffee, yeah. But from the from the photography side, there was me, two lighting assistants, and a digitech. But of course, production was different. The thing was, is um, the reason why we needed a larger production for this is because we weren't just photographing like random people traveling. They had scouted out community leaders that were influential in their like uh, agricultural business and we had like a like a whole shot list so we had to be on point as a production it wasn't some assignments that i do i'm just air dropped into a place and it's like go make, get it make a cultural study of this area or whatever but that one was uh more like clockwork so we need we had a a van we had equipment we had a schedule so it was it was a little different do they really just throw you out of a plane and say go get it <laughs> i was using a metaphor but yeah, no, sometimes <laughs> it sometimes it feels like he's that. not very sharp bro. <laughs> to yeah. explain things yeah some sometimes <laughs> it, it uh, sometimes it feels like that how you doing rob good back hurt yeah doing good it's yeah been, it's been a long we've day been, we've been hunched over these mics all day i know yeah know. so let's talk a little bit about your your team who are the people that you most rely on Yes, yeah, so um, I um, when we do a photo shoot, everybody should be very uh, professional and very on point, very good workers. But they should also be friendly, and they should be friends. And there's a fine line between like when that begins and when it ends on set. So the people I work with are extremely motivated, and extremely hard workers, and um, I have a very um, specific list of people that I work with uh, when I do projects and you can see them in the, all of the dudes with cameras videos, the behind the scenes stuff, you can see the same faces popping up there's Jesse, Caleb Will um, uh, Hector, yeah when you do these kind of shoots you're like a, you're like a family and um, even when I work internationally sometimes we'll be able to fly people out just because it's uh, way better to work with uh, people that know your um, I mean you, 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 you guys brought your own team out here to New York you know why you develop a certain work ethic and work structure and when Actually, you, I don't know why we brought all these. Well, someone's got to find the weed. <laughs> someone's got to carry the bags. Someone does no. behind the scenes. And uh, Sorry, when you factor in the uh, cost of a plane ticket versus what somebody talented that you trust could bring to the table, uh, it usually makes sense just to bring them, if you can. If you can afford it. If not, then you have to be creative and find an, another way. Do you enjoy doing your retouching? Do you do all of it? Yes. Uh, I enjoy it when I have no crazy deadline and I will sit there and it's like meditation for me. But when the deadline gets really crazy, I have two trusted, uh, actually three trusted retouchers now that I work with. But to this day, I still do all the color grading myself. But uh, sometimes things get really crazy and um, I have to outsource things like skin and hair or compositing and stuff like that. And uh, quite frankly, I work with retouchers who are much better at that stuff than I am. Like you guys know Pratik. Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Maybe you guys know uh, uh, Nick Lidley. Um, Not personally, but another Canadian dude. He's amazing. Um, And uh, you get to the point where it's like your time could be better used for something else than sitting there retouching. But um, 
I think it's important to maintain consistency with color. And usually when I prep files for those guys to work on, what it will look like is a PSD with a color stack on it and some uh, selective adjustments made or whatever, and then another layer with instructions. And then I'll send that PSD like on Dropbox and they can just physically work on it, save it, it, it'll sync and I'll see what they do and I'll give more. Uh, One thing I joke about with Pratik and Nick is uh, my video notes. So like I've sort of got tired of writing emails that are novels about what to do. (laughs) So now it's like a really dreaded thing when I send Nick a video note because it means there's a lot to change. So it'll just be like down on my iPhone. I'll be pointing at the screen, criticizing him. (laughs) And uh, then I'll upload it to the Dropbox folder. And then on his end, he'll see a video note and go, oh, shit. But uh, it's a good way to work. <laughs> I see, uh, I think it's called this, is that a Cintiq? Is that yeah. what you use? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you, when did, when did you start using that? Uh, it's because I was just horrible with uh, a normal uh, tablet. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, something about the pen connecting directly to the photo made sense to me. So, uh, so it, is it usually at an angle like that? Is it in your lap? How do you... Um, arms get tired no you can bend you can bend the bend screen yeah. yeah that one's set up just to be a regular screen but you can put it down on on the desk like that and um yeah it's for it's really good for like masking edges and stuff so like even when i'm color grading sometimes i'll be very selective with the areas that i'm coloring it's not a universal um application so i'll go in and mask out certain colors and tweak them slightly so stuff like that where do you think the industry's headed Are you uh, optimist about it yeah, I think there's there's more there's more chance if you were to um, if you were to compare the industry photo industry only to the parameters that defined uh, photography in the past, things would look really bleak and really dire, and you would might say the photography industry is collapsing. But if you compare it to all the new opportunities and the new things going on, you would see that there's actually way more opportunities than ever before. Uh, people still need visuals. I mean, until an AI can like digitally draw something and render something, we'll be fine. But I think people need to pay attention as to where media is consumed. I remember not too long ago, we would bid on projects and um, there'd be a fee for uh, print use and there'd be a fee for web use. And the web would be less, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is crazy to think about because now most people are consuming stuff... uh, online and now things don't really work that way so i you asked like where the future is going i would just um ask people where are they consuming their visuals and i would say there's a lot more of that going on now than there ever was before they just don't take the shape of uh what they used to in a printed magazine in a billboard being forced for you to look at it's a, a, a different landscape now, but it is, a, I think, a more rich landscape than in the past. It's completely different. I, I have seen my clients change that the requests are no longer print campaigns um, so much as it is like social media for the first quarter of the year. Um, the duration shorter. Um, the usage in that sense is wider because it's worldwide. It's, you know, web view. But um yeah, the, the print campaigns and, and the billboards are really starting to change. They're just yeah. not happening as much. Yeah, it's just it's what it's what people are looking at is changing. And, uh, I mean, the way advertising works is uh, 
that platform is um, getting paid for how many eyeballs watches its content, which watches its advertisements. So um, if anyone's curious as to like where the industry is going, just look at what people are doing and what people are looking at. It's much, it's much different. There's this question that I always found really interesting where um, it was uh, during a panel, I was in the audience and they were talking about um, it was when all the magazines were collapsing, all the print magazines Mm -hmm. were going away. There was like five men's fashions magazine. They're going, why did this one collapse? (laughs) Well, because there's like five of you guys and nobody cares anymore because (laughs) they can find this online. But they were talking about um, uh, covers and magazine covers and uh, all these different things. But what was interesting was people cared about a magazine cover because they could go into a store and it was there in front of them. But if that's not how people are consuming media, will being on a magazine cover actually matter at all? Probably not. So the way people are looking at things is changing. And uh, there's some Gilded Age things that I think people are putting uh, too much attention on that are going away, that'll never come back. And they're lamenting about the past rather than looking forward, such as being on a magazine cover. And if that ever meant anything then, it doesn't mean as much now. Yeah, I agree completely. You're absolutely right. Are you getting into motion directing video? Yeah, certainly. Um, I um, actually directed a few commercials for National Geographic Channel and other uh, smaller commercials before that. But uh, it got to the point where um, to be a director is very um, uh, all-consuming. And... um, I'll basically do it if I can do a, a project that I can totally um, be like the photographer, or the director for. And um, if it's something I'm really passionate about, I'll, I'll do it. But I'm not really interested in directing commercials uh, for brands and pitching as, as, as I do for a photographer. Instead, what I've been doing recently is um, applying a lot of the stuff that I do with motion to be part of the uh, photo shoot set itself whether it's through video portraits or behind the scenes or extra things. And also in terms of film work, I also um, made my own first short film or released uh, uh, more than a year ago called people of the Delta. It was like an experimental film, um, born language film, one of the hardest things I've ever done. Hmm. And then uh, along with the book projects, I've also done some documentary videos. So yeah, film and stuff has always been a major uh part of this process for me it's just that those crews and things are generally much bigger as you guys know very well so it's a different medium but um it's something that i think photographers should think about but also know um to make a very good video is a completely different dynamic and different kind of set i think so what's next for you what are you looking forward to the most? <laughs> um, I'm being, uh, I'm going to go to Europe next week to talk about that project that I mentioned, the one I can't speak too much about. Um, yeah, so I, I'm excited for, for that. I'm excited to uh, complete a bunch of these projects that I worked on last year. It's like you shoot stuff eight months ago and it starts to like trickle out. So I'm excited about sharing that. Um. I have a few other like little ad shoots and stuff like that. Um, 
so um i'm excited to release stuff i shot months and months ago basically (laughs) rob have you finally come up with our jingle no, I haven't, but I want to thank you for the conversation because it's what's, really uh, been fascinating. What's the jingle? Every episode, I'm trying to get Rob to do a jingle. I've been coming <laughs> up with some of them, and I like putting them on the spot. And he, he I won't just don't do have it. a jingle mind, you know? Do you think we should have a jingle? Yeah, Are why you? not? Yeah. <laughs> do you have any ideas? I don't know what this is about, but if you give me some <laughs> examples like the, of uh, previous ones. The RGG EDU the, the last one was podcast jingle. No, 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 RGG podcast. That's stolen. Come on, it's stolen. It doesn't matter. We, we need to be original. <laughs> That's why it's funny, Rob. That's how humor works. Me oh. thinking stupid things are, are good ideas. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Rob just face palming. So, he's so done with me right now. <laughs> I didn't, when I listened to your guys' other stuff to check it out, I didn't get as far deep in as uh, hearing a jingle. <laughs> yeah. We haven't come up with one. We, I'll leave, that, I'll, on I'll so, leave yeah. that one to you guys to do in uh, post. We'll get there. Maybe you can re- remix. Uh, something that we said <laughs> so where do you want our audience uh to go to check out your stuff follow you online sure um my instagram and twitter are the same it's uh, at joeyl.com the dot is spelled out d-o-t-c-o-m so joeyl.d-o-t-c-o-m um you also have a education platform right yeah so uh a cu- couple things uh we launched the uh, the pre-order for the book if you go to uh, wecamefromfire.com, that's the name of the book, you can see um, the documentary films for free. And uh, although the book does have a publisher, it relies a lot on um, pre-orders and there's some exclusive stuff there. Like you can get a uh, print with a book if you order uh, before it comes out. And um, it's all connected to that website, wecamefromfire.com. And, uh, yeah, I have some, uh, educational materials as well at learnfromjoeyl.com. So, uh, all that stuff. And it's, it's basically all connected to my social media. So if you want to find out what I'm doing next, you can, uh, see it on Instagram and I'll announce it there. How so. much is the book going to go for? Um, 50 bucks. So it's normal, uh, retail value for normal, uh, hardcover fine art book. All right. Well, sign us up for 10. <laughs> awesome. Sign us up for 10 and we'll yeah, give we'll them away. Them. Absolutely. Somehow, some way, we'll figure it out. That would be awesome, guys. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, thank, thank you. you so much for uh, having us over to your place. My uh, pleasure. You're awesome welcome. talk. You're welcome anytime. Cool. <laughs> thank you. To download this podcast and the entire season five, you can check us out at rggedupodcast.com, where you can download all of the episodes instantly, but you can also follow us on things like iTunes, and Rob made a MySpace page for us. I and, made a Vine uh, page, SoundCloud too. I'm trying to bring Vine back from yeah. the dead. Yeah. Every Wednesday, we publish a new episode. <laughs> Hump day. Hump day. Maybe that should be part of the jingle. Oh, totally. Hump day. Yeah. Yeah, let's build it on Hump Day. I like that. We're getting there. Yeah, yeah. Right. See, it's coming together. It's gelling. I regret to tell you that the horse died of complications several days after the traffic calamity, but it didn't suffer, probably. And a statue of the horse was carved out of granite and placed in the town square to honor the great beast. Season 5 of the RGG EDU podcast is brought to you by Ellen Chrome. The team at Ellen Chrome believes that photography, in all its forms, is one of life's great ongoing adventures. And they are firmly committed to creating lighting gear, modifiers, and accessories that make these adventures more fulfilling, productive, and rewarding. With the launch of the new ELB 500 TTL, adventurous portrait photographers desiring a TTL solution for both in-studio and on-location use can now join in on the fun 